0: Today's passage comes from Galatians chapter 3 verse 23 through chapter 4 verse 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, the passage can be found on 974. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Amy. Good morning, everybody. I want to just, before I get going, add my my push to Leah's announcement uh, this morning to the men. If you were here for announcements, you might have heard it. We have our men's retreat coming up, and today is the last day to sign up. So uh, if you are uh, dragging your feet on that, let me encourage you to drag your feet no more. And uh, I'm going to be there and leading some sessions on Saturday. Love to have you join us. And if you are newer to the church and you're trying to figure out how to meet some men, uh, this would be a great opportunity for that. Or if you've just been around the church for a long time, uh, we'd love to have you there as well. So sign up today, uh, men. Uh, We'd love to have you at the retreat. All right, today we continue on in our sermon series, Held Together, and our series is based out of Colossians 1.17, where Paul says that that in Christ, or that Christ holds all things together. And so our series uh, began a number of weeks ago with a, ki- with a key insight from the Nicene Creed, and we've got uh, been some slides that we've been using, and we looked at how Christ, uh, We explored how Christ in His divine and His human nature, Christ is holding together realities that seem opposite, but yet how this serves as a template for how humanity relates to God and how we too are called to hold things together that may seem opposite. And then last Sunday, we went from Nicene Creed to the Chalcedonian Creed, and we took a trip to Chalcedon and saw how the two natures of Christ, they don't just sit side by side, Nor is the human nature swallowed up and dissolved by the divine nature. Rather, Christ brings His human nature into the divine nature. He submits it to the divine nature, yields to the divine nature. And then the divine nature exalts and glorifies the human nature. And the main point of application from last week was that we too need to surrender the entirety of our humanity and our human nature to God's divine nature so that God can then raise up and exalt and glorify our human nature. So this morning is a continuation of the same basic Chalcedonian insight that we looked at last week. And I want to ask and then answer, hopefully, a key follow-up question that would, would come from what we saw last week. If God glorifies the human nature... When the human nature surrenders to the divine nature, then why do we humans resist surrendering to the divine nature? I mean, that little blue circle out there all by itself, lonely, alone, yet it's brought into the divine nature and it comes to life. It's glorified. Why don't we just race, sprint into the divine nature? What prevents us or slows us down from doing that? What's the holdup? So we're going to explore this question by looking at Israel's story, Israel's coming-of-age story, we could say. And what we'll see is that Israel's identity as children of the law got in the way of Israel's surrender to the divine nature. That'll make more sense as we unpack it. But what I want us to see is how our own wrong identities can get in the way of us surrendering to the divine nature. Then I'm going to close out with three points of application about how not to make the same mistake that Israel made. So our text this morning, which has been read for us, is Galatians 3:23 through 4, 7. But we're going to look at some other passages in Galatians as well, so keep your Bibles open. I've also gotten good reviews about the pictures. People, you've been pleased with the pictures. So I do have some more pictures coming later in the sermon. Yeah. Amen. Oh, hallelujah, Jehovah Jireh. Okay, so stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. All right, so a little bit about the context of our passage as we, as we get into it. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was the founder of the church in Galatia. And the whole letter of Galatians is written about Israel's relationship to the law. That was the issue that prompted Paul to write the letter, Israel's relationship to the law. When Paul was pastoring the Galatian church, he had taught the Galatians, and the Galatians were a bunch of Gentiles, so they weren't part of Israel, naturally. He had taught the Galatians that Israel, and then by extension, the Gentiles, were no longer under the authority of the law. So all the law's rules about circumcision and what to eat and what to wear and who you can marry and how to make sacrifices and Sabbath observances and so forth, none of that, Paul said, held sway anymore over the people of God. You could still do those things if you wanted to. In fact, he counseled Jews to continue doing them for missional reasons, but none of those things defined the people of God anymore. But after he left, some Jewish false teachers had come in behind him and were teaching the opposite of what Paul had taught. They were insisting that the law was, in fact, the still-defining mark of the people of God. And they were telling these Gentile Galatians that they needed to be circumcised. In other words, come into the law and start following the law just like good Jewish proselytes. And so Paul, when he hears this, he pens the letter to Galatians and he sends it back To his church. So this is pretty much just another version of the same problem that we've been encountering in our Second Corinthians sermon series. So in this section of the letter, Paul is explaining to the Galatians why it is that Israel is no longer under the law. And the logic that he uses here in this passage is going to help us see why some in Israel are not eager to surrender to the divine nature. All right, so in verse 23, Paul says that before the coming of Christ, Israel was held captive or imprisoned by the law. Now, this makes the law sound sinister and oppressive, but Paul clarifies what he means in verse 24. He says that the law was Israel's guardian until the coming of faith. Now, the term guardian is a translation of the Greek term pedagogos, And Paul uses this term to describe the law here in verse 24. He does it again in verse 25, and then he does it again in chapter 4, verse 2. So this is Paul's frame. It's how he wants us to understand the law. In the Greco-Roman world, the pedagogos was the household slave who had authority over the children of the family and was responsible to raise the children until the children came of age. So sort of like an English governess. So think Mary Poppins. But the pedagogos would have been a man. So think Marty Poppins. and I think you've got the the right idea. The pedagogos oversaw the children's education, the children's morals, their dress, their meals, their social life. So basically every part of the child's life. So when Paul refers to the law as a pedagogos, he's saying that the law functioned like a servant in the family, who kept watch over Israel as a young child training Israel and generally keeping Israel out of trouble until Israel came of age now that's what means that's what paul means when he says that israel was held captive or imprisoned by the law those Terms have such a negative connotation, and I suppose if you're a child under a pedagogos, that's what you think. The pedagogos is imprisoning you and holding you captive, right? But these have more gentle translations than other passages of Scripture, and the idea is that the pedagogos, or the law, is restraining or coming around or surrounding uh, the children. Now, why did Israel need a pedagogos? Paul tells us back in 319, you can just flip the page and see it there, Paul says that the law was added to the nation of Israel because of transgressions. Israel needed a pedagogos for the same reason that Greco-Roman children needed a pedagogos, because of an inherent proclivity to sin. The job of Israel's pedagogos was to keep Israel on the straight and narrow and to keep them from making harmful choices. That's what sin is. Sin is when we make choices that are harming ourselves. But it wasn't just the child's propensity to sin that required a pedagogos. The Greco-Roman world could be a dangerous place for children. So in the same way that it wasn't safe for children to be turned loose in the Greco-Roman world without a pedagogos, God didn't turn Israel loose into the pagan world without a pedagogos. The pedagogos, the law, Israel's law, was Israel's supervision in the pagan world. But that was then, and this is now, Paul is saying. Because in verse 25, Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So now listen to Paul's logic as he unfolds it here in this passage. Paul in verse 25 says that now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. I'm going to skip a few verses and jump down to chapter 4 here, verse 1. He says, Now I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. So in the Greco Roman household, the, the heir, the child, is entitled to the full family fortunes, right? He has all the rights of a son. But while he's under a pedagogos, he's under a slave. In fact, he's less than a slave in some ways, right? So he's he's the heir and he's entitled to all of the family fortunes, but he has no rights to the family fortunes while he's under the pedagogos. He's under, Paul says, guardians, that's our pedagogos term again, and managers until the date set by his father. So the father would establish some time when the child would come of age, would set the date, and then when that date hit, the child would come out from underneath the, the authority of the pedagogos and would enter into his full rights of sonship. And Paul says, in the same way, verse 3, we also, speaking we as Israel, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. That's the law. It's the, it's the pedagogos that is watching over young Israel. But when the fullness of time had come, And the point that I really want us to pay attention to here is verse 6, because when the date set by the Father, when the fullness of time had come, when Israel had come of age, God sent Jesus to Israel with the divine nature, the Holy Spirit. He brought the Spirit into Israel with the divine nature into Israel's natural nature. So Israel's coming of age moment was when Israel received the divine nature. All right, now let's connect this back to the story of Christ's two natures. So we've got a slide here. This is young Israel, right? And here's a picture of Israel as a child. This is Israel under the law, still, under the Patagagos. Israel has a relationship with God. So God's in the picture, and God and Israel are talking all throughout the Old Testament, but it's fundamentally an external relationship. Israel is still a child, still under the pedagogos. And though Israel is destined to possess all the rights of sonship, Israel has no more rights than a slave because Israel is under the slave, which is the pedagogos. And Israel at this point has yet to be united to the divine nature. So this is Israel throughout the Old Testament, Israel in its natural state. But then, here's our next slide, when Israel came of age, when the fullness of time had come, then God sent the divine nature with the Spirit, with Christ, into Israel. And then Israel's relationship with God became internal. And Israel became united uh, with the divine nature and glorified. And because Israel had now come of age and was now under the Spirit, he was no longer under the authority of the law, the pedagogos. Israel had entered into his full rights as a son of God. So what we're seeing here in this slide is Israel and its Chalcedonian state, we could say. But not all Israel was excited to grow up into its Chalcedonian state. Many within Israel preferred to remain under the law. Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that Israel had an on-again, off-again relationship with the law. At first, young master Israel didn't listen to his pedagogos. Lots of tantrums. Adolescent rebellions, hanging out with the wrong crowd. constantly getting in trouble from the pedagogos. Indeed, it got so bad that young master Israel got kicked out of the house and he ended up living in exile in Babylon for an extended time out. But after the exile, young Israel sobered up. No more talking back. No more sneaking out to parties at night with the Gentiles. No more skipping synagogue on Friday nights. And by the time of Jesus, Israel had gotten a whole lot better about obeying the Paragagos. But now we're getting to the rub of things because as young master Israel got his life together, he began to develop a bit of a superiority complex. He began to take pride in the fact that his father was rich enough a Father was rich, a father was, was rich, a father like was other rich A father was rich Gentile kids, whose parents weren't rich enough or wealthy enough to have the privilege of a pedagogos. And those kids just had to run wild in the streets, and he went from being disdainful of his pedagogos to being boastful about the fact that he had a pedagogos. Or we could say it like this. Israel began to find his identity in the fact that he had a pedagogos. This was especially true of the false teachers that Paul is combating here in Galatia. Because over time, these Jewish teachers of the law, they had become experts in the law. They had made a literal career out of following the pedagogos. And teaching others how to do so. And they were so dedicated to it, and they were so good at it, that they accrued prestige and honor in Israel because of it. All right, but now let's bring our two slides together young Israel and Israel come of age. What's the one thing that young Israel has that Israel come of age does not? It's the law. Pedagogos, Christ's coming and the gift of the Spirit was a problem for the professional law keepers because if the coming of Christ meant the end of the law's authority, that also meant the end of the very thing that they were finding their identity in. They had so fused their identity to the pedagogos that they couldn't let go of it. And because they didn't want to let go of the pedagogos, they refused to grow up and enter into the divine nature. And Paul himself understood the pull of that because he had been raised as a Pharisee, which was a group of people that were themselves professional teachers of the law in and around Jerusalem. And he had made a living out of following the law. And he had accrued a high social standing and renown through his adherence to the law and his ability to teach it. And this whole identity was wrapped up in his identity as a teacher of the law. But then he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Look over in your book, turn back, your, uh, your Bible is turned back to Galatians 2, 19 and 20. And now Paul writes this after he met Christ For through the law I died to the law. So that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul came to see that he had to die to his earthly natural identity as a teacher of the law in order to enter into his new supernatural identity as a mature child of God. And Paul is teaching the Galatians that this is the same thing that's true for everyone. Everyone in Christ has been crucified with Christ. And we don't just die to our sin and our shame, but to our whole humanity, to everything. This is why Paul says in 328, turn back now, looking at 328, that in Christ, there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, Male or female, those are all the important identity markers of the Greco Roman world. And Paul is saying that those who have been crucified in Christ have died to all the old identity markers. And now we are our primary identity marker is we are children of God. That's our identity. Paul mentions baptism here in this context as the beginning or the marker of our new identity. So he says in verse 27. For as many as of you, for as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We read in some of the most ancient early church documents that baptisms were performed naked in the early centuries of the church. I've got some pictures here. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have any, I don't have any pictures. Um, some scholars think that the church uh, may not have practiced literal naked baptisms, but that the outer public garment was removed as a sign of how Christianity strips away all of our earthly identities, whatever the case, the point still stands, whether literal or metaphorical, that when we enter into union with the divine nature, when we are baptized and clothed with Christ, we leave behind all of our old earthly identities and we take up our new heavenly identity as children of God. All right. Now, I'm certain that very few of us are holding too tightly to our identity as teachers of the Jewish law. That's not our problem. So let's see if we can draw some application out of this general principle or establish a general principle and draw some application out of it. Each of us have things in our lives that we are tempted to find our identity in. So I say, nice to meet you. Tell me about yourself. And you say, I'm a mother or I'm a father. I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a business owner, I'm a straight-A student, I'm a hard worker, I'm a pastor, I'm a white guy, I'm a black guy, I'm an American, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a. There's so many things that we say that we are, and there's so many things that the world defines us by, and by which we are tempted to define ourselves, And our identification with these things can stand in the way of us giving ourselves wholly to the divine nature. Because we don't want to have to give them up. We don't want to have to die to these identities. But when we hold on to our earthly identities as our key identities, they prevent us from entering into our heavenly identity as children of God. We have to be crucified and die to our earthly identities before we can put on our new identity in Christ. All right, so here are three quick points of application about finding your identity, laying hold of your new identity in Christ. The first is this, finding your identity in Christ means knowing your identity temptations, your identity temptations. Our sense of identity is linked to those things that we think are most capable of providing wholeness and flourishing to us. Some of us are tempted to find our wholeness and our flourishing in our job. For others, maybe it's our marriage, or our hopes for a marriage, or our kids, or our hopes for kids, or the opinions of others, or our talents, or our resources can pretty easily identify our identity temptations, because these are the things that make us happy when they're going well, and they make us unhappy when they're not going well. When my kids are thriving, I'm happy. When my kids are not, I'm not. When my marriage is thriving, I'm happy. When it's not, I'm not. When my boss thinks well of me, I'm happy. When he or she doesn't think well of me, I'm not happy. And on and on it goes. Now, your happiness and unhappiness about those things doesn't necessarily mean that you have your identity in those things. But it does mean that those are the things that are most likely to serve as substitutes to the divine nature for you. Those are the Chalcedonian mirages for you. They're what you'll look towards or settle for instead of the divine nature. And all of us have these identity temptations. So I know what my identity temptations are. What are your identity temptations? If you don't know, you could maybe take this next week and just journal at the end of every day, just draw a line down the page and write down on one side all the things that brought you stress and anxiety and happiness. And write down on the other side all the things that brought you joy and pleasure and goodness. That will reveal to you your identity temptations. These are the things that you are looking to, to find your identity, or you're tempted to look to, to find your identity. Now, many of us don't need a whole week of journaling to figure this out. Even just two minutes of reflection, perhaps even on our morning coming to church, we we, we know what the things are that are our identity temptations. This point is especially important, I think, for decent Christian people and dedicated church folks, which is like most of us here. Because most identity temptations are not bad or evil things. They're good and godly things. That's what we're most tempted to find our identity in, is the good things that God has made. So the false teachers of Galatians are a classic example. They were experts in the law, and there's nothing wrong with being an expert in the law. There's nothing wrong with following the Jewish law. God was the one who had given the Jewish law in the first place, and the law served a really important purpose, and it was an occasion of praise in the people of God. So when you read the Psalms, the psalmists are always praising God for the gift of the law. It was a great gift to have a Patiagos that was watching over the people. But God had given Israel the law, but God hadn't given Israel the law so that they could define themselves as children of the law. He had given them the law so that they could define themselves as children of God. Because the truest identity for the Greco-Roman child who's under a pedagogos is not that he is a child of the pedagogos, but that he is a child of the father. That is the truest identity of the child. And the false teachers had taken what God had given as a means and it turned it into an identity marker, turned it into an end. And the same thing can happen, I think, with good Christian religious observances today, even for those like myself who are in ministry. So when I became pastor back in 2018, we, uh, we were, I was on social media still at the time. And so we would we take the services, we would put them on Facebook, and then we would take the sermons and put them also on Facebook. So I would always go in and I would promote the sermons and promote the services uh, on Facebook on Monday mornings, you know, just to spread the the Word of God, you know, further and broader, right? But what I found is that I would go in on Monday mornings and I would look and see and be like, oh, yeah, I that, that got a fire on that one. That was supposed to be a really good sermon, you know. Or it would be no one commented on that sermon. Four views, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's too, you know. And uh, what I found was that while I went in well-intentioned to sort of promote the gospel through the services and through my sermons, I was finding that I was becoming more preoccupied with what other people were thinking about my sermons than what God was thinking about my sermons or than what you all were thinking about my sermons. Here's a bunch of people that I don't even know that don't go to my church. What do I care what they think about my sermons, right? But so many of us can do that where we start out thinking that we're doing something for the Lord, but then we find out subtly that actually we're not doing it for the Lord. We're doing it for ourselves. And my distress... ...for me. So social media can tempt us in these ways. I wasn't using duck lips and pretty hair to uh, accrue, you know, attention to myself. Sermon. God has given us so many wonderful things, even a share in His ministry. But God didn't give us those things so that we could define ourselves by them, so that we could find our identity in them. He gave us those things that we the joy of the Lord trying to find our identity in the opinions of others. All right, so here's the second principle. Finding your identity in Christ doesn't mean necessarily though that you always have to forsake your identity temptations. Sometimes you do, but not always. Some of our identity temptations are things that we just simply can't walk away from. If your identity temptation is your child, you're stuck, right? There's, there's nowhere to go to get rid of that identity temptation, right? You have to live with that child every day, right? Maybe it's your job or your good health. Maybe it's being white. Maybe it's being black. Like There are some identity temptations you simply cannot get rid of, and God doesn't want you to. If we had more time, I would show you from other parts of Scripture that Paul continued to live as a Torah-observant Jew. You can see that in Acts 21. His Torah lifestyle was important for his mission as a Jewish evangelist. So he's, he, didn't, he didn't walk away from, from his identity temptation that he had experienced earlier in life. But he stopped clinging to his Torah observance as an identity marker. So God isn't always calling us to leave behind our identity temptations. Sometimes He's just calling us to stop finding our identity in those things. But some identity temptations we do need to let go of. Sometimes the only way that we can put a false identity to death is to let go of it entirely. That takes some discernment and some prayer and some wise counsel to know, is this an identity temptation that I should completely step away from? And sometimes God just decides for us. I don't have a historical interlude today or a quote from a church father, but I do have a quote from a church mother, St. Catherine of Siena, who was an Italian mystic and a pious laywoman in the 14th century, and she uh, wrote a book called The Dialogues, which is all about the love of God and God's love, for His people, and for humanity. And in Dialogue 49, she records God as saying this, "'I send people trouble in this world "'so that they may know that their goal is not this life "'and that these things are imperfect and passing. "'I am their goal, and I want them to want me, "'and in this spirit they should accept such things.'" So if you've lost something that you think defines you, perhaps God has taken it away so that you can find your identity and your joy in Him. The goal of your life is not your marriage, it's not your children, it's not your job, it's not your health. He is the goal of your life. And He calls you to find your identity in Him because He loves you. And he gives us all of these things, all these good things in life, just like he gave Israel the law, because he wants these things to lead us to himself. But sometimes we get stuck in them, and we can't see beyond them to him. And he wants to make eye contact with us, but we we can't see him, and he has to remove some of the things that he's given us so that we can see him face to face. It's painful when he takes away some of these identity markers, these identity temptations. But He does it because He loves us, because He wants to pour Himself out into us. And if you're in a season where you're losing something that you had your identity in, He knows that it's painful, and He's not unsympathetic to that. But He wants you to learn to see Him beyond that identity marker, to learn to see Him face to face. And that leads to our last of application, finding your identity in Christ means remembering the love of Jesus. We hesitate to bring our humanity into submission to the divine nature because we know, intuitively know that it will mean letting go of the earthly things that define us, that are dear to us. and we don't want to be crucified and die to our marriage or die to our children, or die to our jobs. We want the life of God, but we don't want the death of God. But Christ's resurrection only came on the far side of the crucifixion. And it's the same with us. God only raises us up when we first humble ourselves before Him. And the human nature is only exalted when it surrenders to the divine nature. Now, I used to think that just knowing and believing that basic truth was sufficient. I used to think that the key to the Christian life was to always keep in mind that death is the pathway to life, humility is the pathway to honor, and that losing our lives is the pathway to finding them. And that is a key, but it's not the key. The key is that Jesus loves me. The love of Christ for me is how the whole thing begins. So in Galatians 2.20, when Paul writes, and the life that I now live in the flesh, this crucified life that I am living, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Christ loves us and he gives himself to us prior to him asking us to join him in his cross. We stand there looking up at Jesus on the cross, or we stand at the top of the mountain pass, looking down into the bottom of the shadowed valley, and our heart beats fast, and it's fearful, and it's scary, and we hear the call of Christ to come and die, to come join him in his suffering, so that we can experience his life on the other side of the resurrection. But he's not simply calling us from up on the cross or from down in the bottom of the valley. He's also standing next to us with love in his eyes, and he puts his arm around our shoulder. And he says to us, I love you, and I will walk with you. And I know that it's scary getting up on a cross. And I know that it's scary walking down into the valley, but you don't have to do it alone. I will be with you, and I will go with you each step of the way. We'll journey down this difficult road together. And it's the love and presence of Christ that gives us the strength to lose our lives on the cross. And it's the love and presence of Christ that gives us the courage to step into the shadowed valley. And it's the love and presence of Christ that gives us the faith to surrender our humanity fully to the divine nature. And it's the love and presence of Christ that gives us the hope that we need to face the death of all of our earthly identities. So this morning, Christ is calling you to let go of an earthly identity that you've held dear Perhaps He's taken one away from you. You can trust Him. You can trust Him because He loves you. And He's calling you to Himself because He loves you. We're going to close the service by singing I Surrender All. It's a song we've sung many times here. It's an old classic hymn. Last week, I encouraged us to think about bringing our whole humanity into Christ. But I want us to think this week as we close out the service about what is that identity marker, that earthly identity marker, your identity temptation that you don't want to let go of to come into Christ, that you would want to hold on to. Surrender that to Christ as well, to let go of that to come in and surrender to Christ. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. God, thank you that everything that we let go of to find ourselves in you is so worth it. Pray that you would give courage and faith, the assurance of your spirit, your presence, to any right now, Lord, that perhaps are standing on the precipice of the shadowed valley, Maybe they're in the shadowed valley. They're not sure they can keep walking it. God, I pray that you would encourage them with your presence and in the courage of your presence that they would be able to surrender all to you. I pray that be true for all of us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.